G'day and thanks for joining us for this week's Two Ticks Town Talk, a segment of the Australia Talks podcast. I'm DK. And I'm RD. Please enjoy this segment from the regular podcast. I've been a all right, this week we're going west, out to Exmouth in Western Australia. Population in 2021 of about 2,800. It's located 1,264 kilometers north of Perth. That's about 785 miles for our Americans. Grab a beer a brew or something, because this is going to be a bit of a wild story. Can I look um, at my picture yet, or do I have to you, wait? You can, you can look at the picture if you want to. I don't think – so, listeners, I've <laughs> sent a picture. I don't think he's going to know what it is, but I would actually quite like for you to, to, to look at it now and then try and describe what you're seeing to, to, to the listeners. I'm seeing well, – and listeners, we'll, we'll – I think we'll be able to link this in um, uh, link this in the the actual show notes. If not, we'll work out a. What am I seeing? I am seeing something that looks like a Google map, and it looks like like a Google Maps satellite image um, yep. with some coastline. And I'm assuming that the hexagonal um, multi-striated um, Shape being shown is actually part of the landscape rather than superimposed because there seems to be a building in the middle. Gosh, there's lots of lots of things with six coming out of there. It's presumably not the um, nothing to do with the hexagon that we've seen on uh, was it Saturn or Jupiter that we saw that hexagon. Um, I, I think it's, a, it's on both, but no, it's got nothing. Not well. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I suppose you already gave it away. It's, it's X, Xmouth. So it's it looks like a very very large hexagon with a hexagon inside it, and I don't know whether they're roads or tracks or markings. Are, I'll, I'll give you a hint. They are tracks between something. So kind of like it's like a like a oh, like a he- cannot- hexagon with almost like a star between it with a smaller hexagon. Is it anything to do with radio and communications? It is to do with radio and communications. Oh, okay. Well, I'm well, keep going because that's interesting. All right. Let's let's back up a bit. We'll start with a little bit of history about the area. So in eight. 1618, not 1816, 1618, the Dutch East India Company ship Mauritius under the command of Willem Janzoon. I've probably butchered that, but anyway, landed near. I love that this has started (laughs) off in 1618. 1618. There's a lot of history to go through. Uh, He landed in Northwest Cape just approximately about where the town of Exmouth is today. Uh, Now, that satellite photo that you were looking at that we sort of briefly described is just north of the town, about six to seven k's out of the town. So it is very, very close. The explorer Philip Parker King 
was actually forced, he was a British explorer, and he was forced into the Exmouth Gulf uh, on the 11th of February, 1818. And he spent the next eight days exploring the region in the process and actually named the Gulf Exmouth after the Admiral Edward Pillu, first Viscount of Exmouth. Between 1818 and 1899, the peninsula was regularly visited by pearlers. Of course, pearlers being divers that dive down and find pearls out of shellfish, clams, I assume. <laughs> Oysters. In, yeah. So fast forward a little, bit, a little bit of time to 1941. I didn't find, I should, sorry, rewind a bit. I didn't find that the area was specifically inhabited by any indigenous group, uh, though I'm sure the larger area probably was, but not specifically the, the peninsula. Um, if I'm wrong, please let me know. Uh, in 1941, with the loss of the naval base in Manila in the Philippines, the US submarines fled to the Dutch East Indies and then into Indonesia. Uh until, of course, those ports were also taken over. We're talking World War II, the Japanese invasion. This forced the US submarine fleet to come to Australia, Australian ports out of bomber range. This was pretty important. We didn't want the Japanese to continue to bomb the fleet at anchor. So in early 1942, the submarine base was actually set up in the Exmouth Gulf, and to support these submarines, a submarine tender, USS Pelias, which is a submarine tender is basically, think like a, a cargo ship uh, that basically parks itself, pontoons go out the side, submarine comes up, we refuel it and everything like that. And then it leaves. So they set up a submarine tender in the Exmouth Gulf in, of course, Western Australia. They also got a 500-ton Type B barge that was stationed out there as well, used as an oiler to refuel the subs with fuel. Uh, and because they had this little base here, this sort of temporary base, if you like, they needed somewhere to set up rest camps for the crews. So they established a small settlement uh, just inland of where the submarine tender and things was. While it was thought the Exmouth Gulf was far enough south and out of a range of attack, on the 20th and 21st of May 1943, the base itself was actually attacked by Japanese bombers. So the base was actually moved to Fremantle Submarine Base. The base, when I say it was attacked, it was overflown by a bunch of Japanese bombers. They dropped some bombs. They didn't hit anything. But it kind of spooked everyone. Um, and so they decided to move uh, further south to the Fremantle Submarine Base. In September 1943, the base was used by the very famous Z Special Unit. And they started Operation JWIC from the Exmouth submarine base and conducted a very successful raid on Japanese shipping in the Singapore harbour. They also started Operation Renew from the base uh, a little bit later on, but that was very unsuccessful with all the team members killed uh, as the Japanese found them before the raid. Six Z Special Crew members killed have their names uh, immortalised in the streets of Exmouth. 
uh, to this day, which is a bit cool. I would really, I kind of have to, there's a lot of history, so we're going to go through this pretty quickly, but if you haven't heard about Operation JWIC and the, the Z Special Unit, I really strongly uh, advise you to look it up. This is kind of the precursor to the SASR in Australia, uh, sort of special forces, uh, infiltration, international espionage, all of that kind of stuff. It's very, very oh, cool. Damn, I was going to, I, I was going to ask you what, but, but if, it's a, if it's a long one, well, I'll, yeah. have to, I'll, I'll have to look it up myself. We're not even halfway. We have to keep going. Um, so in 1945, uh, most of the military facilities in the area were destroyed by cyclone. This was also part of the problem with this specific location uh, in the Gulf of Exmouth because uh, it is cyclone prone in that area compared to further south. There was always a bit of a worry about setting up too, many, too much permanent uh, base infrastructure at the time, which is why they used... Uh, instead of actually building a full facility, that just kind of was a bit of a ramshackle. But then that was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because, of course, as soon as the cyclone came through, it, it sort of destroyed everything. So anyway, during that period, though, they did build an air base uh, or sort of a runway, I should call it, uh, a, a, a not a tarmac runway, just a, a dirt runway uh, just south of this area. And in 1963, so we're going to fast forward a bit more. In 1963, the Western Australian government, the town planning department, uh, chose three sites on the northerly tip of the peninsula where they planned to use 121 hectares to build a town which would house 702 people. Meanwhile, and I'm sure it was no coincidence, the Prime Minister, Harold Holt, signed an agreement... (laughs) with the U.S. government to build a naval communication station just north of the new, well, the proposed new town of Exmouth. Exmouth was officially gazetted, gazetted, gazetted in 1963, and its first two civil commissioners were Colonel K. Murdoch and Air Commodore T. Walters. Um... By 1964, there were only four permanent houses in the town. Most most of the population still lived in the Burtonshaw Caravan Park. So it was all happened very, very quickly. And again, this area seems to be uh, one of which a lot of uh, temporary sort of structures are built. The state, I should say as well, for our international listeners that don't quite know where this is, it is very remote Western Australian coastline. So there's not a lot around here. Uh, the station was committed, commissioned as the U.S. Naval Communications Station Northwest Cape on the 16th of September 1967 at a ceremony with the UM, U.S. Ambassador to Australia, Ed Clark, and the Prime Minister of Australia, Harold Holt. They did, at this ceremony, they did what they call a peppercorn, peppercorn payment uh, for the rent of the, the sort of the lease of the land. Uh, this is where, you know, they'd still do this today where they pay like a dollar for rent or something like that. Oh, yeah. um, I believe in this case, it literally was a peppercorn that huh. the US ambassador Ed Clark gave to Prime Minister Harold Holt. I wonder what he did with it. Yeah. <laughs> in he said, that's tremendous. This is going to be my lucky charm. I'm going to take it with me on my next swim. <laughs> 
In September the following year, the station was officially renamed to U.S. Naval Communications Station Harold E. Holt in memory of the late Harold Holt, Prime Minister of Australia, who disappeared whilst swimming and was declared dead, presumed drowned three months after the station was commissioned. But we know he, he that peppercorn, he took that with him <laughs> to China. That Chinese submarine he climbed in and went to, to China. That's right. And came up there and they said, have you got the peppercorn? And he just <laughs> produced it with a smile. <laughs> with the election of the Labour government to power in 1972, the Defence Minister Lance Bernard started negotiations on the condition of the operation of the US military bases in Australia. Because this was a pretty contentious sort of point at the time. Uh, post-Vietnam uh, War, or at least Australia's involvement in the war and things like that. And on the 9th of January 1974, a joint statement by the Defence Minister and the US Secretary of Defence assigned the Deputy Commander of the base to a Royal Australian Naval Officer and gave Australian personnel in-base technical and maintenance functions. However, the cipher room was closed to Australian scrutiny. So prior to this, this base was very much a U.S. military installation. There were never allowed Australians on board the base. There were never Australian personnel, uh, military personnel stationed there or anything like that. In May 1974, several hundred people travelled to North Cape from around Australia to protest and occupy the base and, quote, unquote, symbolically reclaim it for the Australian people. During the occupation, the Eureka Eureka flag was flown over the base with 55 people arrested during the protest. The U.S. designation was dropped from the station's official title with the advent of the Joint United States and Royal Australian Navy operation in 1974. And in 1991, an agreement was reached between the governments of Australia and the United States that would make the facility uh, Australian Naval Communications Station by 1999, a transition that began with Royal Australian Naval officers taking command of the facility in 1992, and the majority of US naval presence ending in 1993 with the withdrawal of all uniformed US personnel. Ah. Hang on. But hang on, DK, I hear you say. What does this base actually do? Obviously, it's a communications base. We've established that. But what's so important about this facility? The station is operated and maintained by the Australian Department of Defence on behalf of the Australian and the United States and provides very low frequency radio transmissions. These are sent to United States Navy, Royal Australian Navy and allied ships. But most importantly submarines in the western and eastern Indian Ocean. Apparently the frequency is 19.8 kilohertz. I don't know what that means. With a transmission power of 1 megawatt, which sounds like a lot. Uh, And it is the most powerful transmission station in the southern hemisphere. Huh. Now, in July 2002, the Royal Australian Navy handed the operation of the, of the station to the Defence Material Organisation. The base is currently operated under contract by Raytheon Australia. Raytheon Australia oh. is a subsidy oh. of Raytheon, a defence contractor from the United States of America. 
The base well, has isn't that sneaky. <laughs> hmm. The base has since begun expansion of its facilities to include C-band space surveillance radar for the space situational awareness capability, allowing the tracking of space assets and debris. So this is all of a sudden becoming quite important facility once again because there is a lot of space here at the Haraldi Holt. Now, the image... Sorry, just to, just to interrupt, did you... Did I... Hear correctly, so there's there's no Australian defence um, force there, or there there is, but Raytheon's running it. I, I sort of missed that bit. There's a bit of both, I believe. So technically, the Royal Australian Navy handed the facility over to the Defence Material Organisation, which is uh, one of these government organisations that maintains and operates uh, defence capabilities to take it off the hands of of the military because it just, you know, like personnel and, and, and those sorts of things. Um, and it's currently operated by Raytheon Australia. However, I can say with almost certainty that there would be naval personnel coming and going out of that facility on a fairly regular basis, or at least they'd be in contact to it. I don't know how often they'd actually go out there just because I don't think they'd need to, but I'm sure 99.9% of the phone calls that they get are from <laughs> from naval personnel. Uh, when I was in the Navy, we definitely knew about this facility, but it wasn't something that I personally knew of anyone actually having ever gone to just because it's just a piece of infrastructure kind of thing. So... Um, but if you right. did drive past and you saw a uniformed person, it wouldn't surprise me too much. Okay, okay. Uh, so why was this base so con- uh, contentious and, and why did the Americans build it here? Basically, the very low-frequency radio transmissions that were, were uh, that this facility was built to to transmit on is really one of the only ways that they can contact submarines when they're underwater. And so the Americans, particularly during the Cold War, needed a facility that they could use uh, in this hemisphere uh, to contact their their fleet of submarines uh, when they were in the Indian Ocean, uh, which the Indian Ocean is famously very big. (laughs) Um, And this is the sort of thing at the time you couldn't really just rely on satellites to do. Uh, so that image that I've sent you that sort of looks like a, uh, almost like a pentagram or something like that, um, to give you a sense yeah, of scale, expert. like, yeah, it's, it's friggin' huge. It's, um, if I measure it, it's like 1.6 Ks oh, from wow. point to point, something like wow, that. Okay. So it is, yeah, it is a very big facility and, and where those, Sort of points are in the in the the pentagram uh, in the in the hexagon and, and the smaller one is the uh, towers and the the central tower is three hundred and eighty meters high. It's massive. Oh, right. Um, so it is a very big facility. It is very cool. It's kind of looming uh, on the on the horizon as you come up to it because this is just outside the the town of Exmouth. Um, hey, this is it. probably a silly question that hopefully you know the answer to. But if they're communicating with subs, how does an antenna sitting on the on the land, land actually do work? it? 
I have no idea. Oh, no, I, I, there's no, a, there's it's one. actually a great question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, here's a... I mean, obviously it does, but... Yeah, I, I, I think it bounces it up off the, the high atmosphere, I think is how it works. But don't quote me on that because I'm not oh, okay. 100% sure. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure they sort of bounce it off the the like stratosphere or, or the ionosphere probably and it sort of comes back down uh towards the ground but that's a really good question that i'm not 100 percent sure of um so i've just sent you another photo where you can see it uh on from like a plane flying by and you can sort of uh, see it right. makes a, it makes a bit more sense when you see oh, it oh okay so yeah. right I, I see what you're saying now so just for uh listeners at, at home or at at work or driving around the car, wherever you may be, um, when you are driving by and you see those big, um, like large sort of uh, scaffolding type poles that are red and white, yeah, and like typically broadcasting somewhere. Like you look at it and you think, okay, that's that's a radio thing. Yeah, and at night it's like got the red lights on it and stuff. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's like a bunch of them. I think there's like I don't know, I haven't counted them, but. There's there's quite a few of them, and they're all linked together in sort of this like star pattern. It actually looks quite yeah. cool. But anyway, well, that's a big concern. Hmm. So this facility, because of its origins with the U.S. military in the Cold War, is all very secret. Australians can't go there. What's going on? You know, the town is right there. There's been a few conspiracies coming out of the the Harold E. Holt Naval Communications Station. So. Let's move on. <laughs> we'll delve a little bit <laughs> into some it. of this. So, the Harold E. Holt Naval Communications Station lies almost perfectly on the flight path of a Qantas flight QF 72 and 71 that flies from Perth to Singapore. So, QF 71 originates in Perth and flies to Singapore, and QF 72 originates in, in Singapore and flies to Perth. Now, Again, I'll keep this really quick because we've already talked a lot about uh, this this sort of topic. But on the 7th of October 2008, QF Flight 72 with 315 people on board departed Singapore on a scheduled flight to Perth over Western Australia. At 12.40 Western Standard Time, when the aircraft's three... Flight inertial reference units started providing incorrect data to the flight computer. An incident occurred. This response to anomalous data, the autopilot automatically disengaged. A few seconds later, the pilots received an electronic message on the aircraft's control panel saying something's wrong and there's an irregularity in the autopilot and the inertial reference systems. And contradictory audible stall and overspeed warnings started during this time the captain began to control the aircraft manually two minutes later the aircraft made a sudden uncommanded pitch down maneuver experiencing negative eight g's and reaching a 8.4 degree pitch down and rapidly descended 200 meters or 650 feet 20 seconds later, the pilots were able to return the aircraft to the assigned flight cruise level. However, a minute and a half after that, 
You've just caught your breath. We're still flying. Everything's okay. The aircraft made a second uncommanded maneuver of a similar nature, this time causing an acceleration of plus 0.2 Gs and a 3.5 degree down angle with a loss of a further 120 meters or 400 feet until the flight crew was able to reestablish the aircraft's assigned flight about 16 seconds. Unrestrained and even some restrained passengers and crew were flung around the cabin or crushed by overhead luggage that flew out of the, the baggage containers as well as crashing with and through overhead compartment doors. The pilots stabilized the plane and declared a a state of emergency, which was later updated to, uh, sorry, a state of alert, which was later updated to a mayday, a state of emergency. When the extended injuries were relayed to the flight crew, the flight made an emergency landing at RAF base Learmonth, which is also called Learmonth Civil Airport, which is located just south of the town of Exmouth. Hmm. At the base, the Royal Flying Doctor Service and Care Flight uh, evacuated more than 20 serious injured people to Perth and others were treated at the nearby Exmouth Hospital. And Qantas sent two planes with medical teams and customs officers from Perth to Exmouth to help treat the uninjured people and fly those not hurt back to Perth. Now, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau immediately started an investigation and was supported by the Australian Civil Aviation Safety Authority, Qantas, the French Bureau of Inquiry and Analysis for Civil Aviation Safety, that's a mouthful, and Airbus, because they were flying on an Airbus A320. To keep this short and not too technical, because probably what I said before was a little bit too technical for some of our listeners, the aircraft was equipped with an air data inertial reference unit manufactured by the US company Northrop Grumman. It found that the CPU of this air data inertial reference unit was found to be corrupted and the angle of attack data specifically. Now, angle of attack is basically how planes understand, uh, for all the pilots that are listening, I'm going to butcher this, uh, (laughs) but I'm trying to keep this really basic. So basically angle of attack is the angle of which your sort of, planes wings are directed into the airstream if that makes sense so whether it's pointing up whether it's pointing down and all these sorts of things um and of course when it is in level flight so this error triggered a high angle of attack protection mode thinking that the plane is pointing its nose towards the sky and that a stall is imminent and it sent a command to the electrical flight control system to pitch the nose down which is why the plane flew downwards but why well a number of potential trigger types were investigated including software bugs software corruption hardware faults electromagnetic interference hmm, and secondary high energy particles generated from cosmic rays and even solar flares Although a definitive conclusion was never reached, sufficient information from multiple sources enabled the conclusion that most of the potential triggers were very unlikely to have been involved, and a much more likely scenario that it was a marginal hardware weakness from some of the units uh, were susceptible to the effects of some sort of environmental factor, which triggered the failure mode. 
Hmm. Mm. Speculation arose that interference from the naval communications station Harold E. Holt or possibly some passenger's personal electronic device could have been involved in the incident. But the uh, Australian Transport Safety Bureau assessed that this possibility is extremely unlikely. Hmm. Now, <laughs> on the 27th of December 2008, so a few months later, a Qantas A330-300 aircraft was operating from Perth to Singapore, QF-71, and was involved in exactly the same thing. The autopilot <laughs> By that dis- stage, it had been known as the brown corduroy manoeuvre. <laughs> the autopilot was immediately disconnected and the crew received an alert indicating a problem with the, uh, what do we call them? The air data inertial refer- reference unit. Uh, and the crew performed the revised procedure released by Airbus after the earlier incident and returned to Perth uneventfully. However, just to sprinkle a, a few grains of salt on this conspiracy. The aircraft was approximately 650 kilometres south of the Naval Communications Station at the time of the incident. So, was it the cause the first time? Oh, possibly, but the second time, probably not Not so much. But, uh, but it is a fun story. So, you can fly to the town of Exmouth via the Learmonth Airport to experience the World Heritage-listed Nigaloo Marine Park, one of the world's... Actually, sorry, it is the world's largest fringing reef. It's a mecca for divers and snorkelers and Exmouth, and its surrounds offer some of the most unforgettable encounters you will ever experience, especially because between March and August, you can swim with whale sharks. Oh, wow. The gentle giants of the sea. They're also very uh, well known for manta rays and things like that out there as well. So definitely on the bucket list. I know I spent a lot of time talking about the uh, Naval Communications Station Harold E. Holt because it is a bit of a fun, quirky little thing that happened here in Australia. A bit of history. Um, A lot of history. But genuinely, uh, the town of Exmouth, it really exists today, not just servicing the base, uh, the RAF base to the south, and of course, the Naval Communications Station to the north of the town, but the tourism is really what keeps keeps the town alive and the lifeblood of the area. So while you can't tour the Naval Communications Station, you can definitely see it from the town, uh, especially at night when it all lights up. So get in your car, get on a plane, Probably not QF Flight 72. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, fly to Perth and then drive from there to Exmouth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, the Learmonth Airport is actually south of the town, so you wouldn't fly over the, the Naval Communication Station. But um, get out there. Go and experience one of these remote con- uh, locations. I don't think you'd regret it. Oh, that's interesting. That's a lot of, that's a lot of history going into that. I didn't know that there was... Um, that submarine base either and i i suppose i hadn't thought of it before but you were talking about the the tender and how that's just essentially where they can come up and and dock and it was also interesting too that uh yet another place in australia that during the war that was uh had an interaction with the the enemy at that stage the the japanese i did you, I think you said that uh, 
They didn't. They didn't drop any bombs or anything. No, they they uh, they didn't hit anything. They dropped bombs. Oh, didn't but they didn't hit anything. Yeah, they didn't hit right. anything. Yeah. So again, it's another one of these places in Australia that was was actually bombed by the Japanese. They did send yeah. uh, a- aircraft from from the base down in Learmonth. Uh, they did send some aircraft up. Uh, to sort of fly out and chase them off. Um, Learmonth is probably about 35k south uh, of Exmouth. Uh, and the, the actually, we mentioned them before. They were uh, RAF boomerangs, domestically built uh, fighters from Australia, and they flew right. out there. But sort of by the time they got there, the, the bombers were kind of too far away. And by the time they sort of chased them down, they were running out of fuel. And so it was all kind mm-hmm. of. A lot of nothing, really. Um, yeah. The bombers didn't hit anything. The fighters didn't get them. So, they, but they just decided, look, you know, we've been discovered. We better sort of skedaddle and, and move to a, to a more secure location. So, so they did. But um, I wonder what wonder what this holds too with this um, the the AUKUS agreement with the submarines. What that's going to be, whether that's going to sort of play any part of it, because that's uh, like I like the uh, the little sort of peas under the cup movements that you were going into with it was the the US and it became a political um a political hot potato so then they threw the Australians in and but then there was that uh you know Raytheon Australia which is you may as well just be Raytheon US and Raytheon US with their controls in the uh the US government uh, you, you're thinking, okay, well, they so they've come in now, and it's it's just like it was. Yeah, well, we'll look, we'll, we'll placate the people uh, getting getting up in arms about this. Uh, we'll rename it. We'll throw it in there. That'll die down. It goes away, and then we'll quietly put in another method of control in there. That was, yeah, that was. That yeah. was funny to hear that those sort of little manoeuvrings. Yeah, you you hear those things, and you realise that. Uh, people in that industry and that might have that mindset of a few decades as opposed to next month's barbecue yeah exactly they'll um yeah like you said they'll just placate the people keep everyone happy and and that'll be the end of that because this really was like there's sort of two major facilities there's the one uh just outside the town like i said probably five or six k's out of the town which is the original one and there is a one a, a bit further north uh sort of on the tip of the cape which is the more modern facility and look i don't know how much this facility is used compared to say like satellite communications these days i genuinely have no idea but oh, yeah. yeah like they're not going to give up uh, this sort of capability as sort of a, a, you know, like a backup or something like that. Um, I'm sure there's pros and cons to both sort of means of communication and things like that. So I think this is going to be quite important. And as I said, these days, the facility is being upgraded and expanded for uh, uh, use for uh, Space Force stuff. So both yeah, the Americans- Yeah, that was an interesting little thing that you you threw in, in, in there. You had, you had two space-related things. So the, the satellite, and I, you, you may, know, may not know the answer to this, but the satellite communications, I mean, look, my understanding of radio waves is, is very rudimentary, but I do have a, a reasonable enough to, to know that we've got to have these great big ones to have these big long wavelengths that um, get sent out, however they do it past there. But I didn't, I didn't think that was the case with satellites. So with satellites, don't they have to throw like float 
something up to the surface to communicate with satellites or do satellites penetrate through the water or do you not know? I think I think to get a proper signal, you're right, they do have to come up and they put like a, a sort of like a, a buoy or a buoy, as our Americans like to say, um, buoy, yes, to, to aid with the communications as some, you know, as a form of antenna, if you like. Um, I think it just makes it a lot, lot clearer. I think they can do very limited uh, communications whilst they're underwater. Um, I'm not 100% sure exactly how that works, and it's probably all classified, if I'm honest. So, um and yeah, I think probably. that's the thing. I think because of the submarine angle, because basically in the Navy, when you start talking about submarines, it all becomes very hush-hush. You know, they called the silent service for a reason. It's all sub submariners often sort of keep to themselves and things like that. Um, they're just a different kind of group of sailors. And, and, and you know, 99.9% .9 of what they do is, is secret bites nature. Um, mm. So this this sort of facility being that it's primarily for communicating with uh, submarines. Obviously, it's not limited to that, but that's sort of its main job. Um, kind of has that same sort of idea of, of sort of secretness and, 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 you know, that sort of thing, which there's a lot of people that don't like that. They're like, what is this for? And you say it communicates with submarines, so we can't really say much more than that. And then, oh, that's not good enough. You know, you're forming us off. And so naturally, of course, um, these sort of conspiracies start ar ar arriving. That QF uh, Flight 72, was that <laughs> caused by, by huh? interference? We have no idea. The reality is we don't know. It could have been. It could have not been. There's a, there's, that flight flies every day. So there hasn't been a, a problem since. Uh, there wasn't mm. a problem before that. Was it, was it caused by interruption from the base? No idea. They haven't told us. We don't know. It could have been covered up. Probably not. Um, but again, like I said, we don't know. So it's one of these things that's just kind of a bit, you know, uh, hush hush and it's going to be like that moving forward so the united space yeah, uh, the yes. united states especially when you said the thing yeah. with the the space it's not it's not going to get any more open is it no so the united states space surveillance network which i think is part of nasa and space force i think now as well um is i think part of it's being relocated to the facility uh and of course the royal australian air force australian military doesn't have space force but we do space is uh the domain of the royal australian air force uh so they have facility there as well uh that uh, again i think it's just a piece of infrastructure i don't think there's actually any uh air force personnel at the base you know day to day uh but again this sort of facility there's there's lots of space there it is a very big area so it wouldn't surprise me if we just keep seeing new sites pop up next, you know, next to it and things like that. But um, we don't have a lot of this sort of stuff in Australia, so it's kind of cool no. to talk about it. Yeah. Oh, such, well, what, with the space thing, with any luck, we'll get another peppercorn. I hope so. <laughs> just <laughs> don't give it to Harold Holt. Yeah, exactly. The lucky just, peppercorn. Just thinking yeah. who's going to get that peppercorn. I don't, I don't know me. I don't want the lucky peppercorn. <laughs> Oh, that was, right. very, that was very interesting, and I was it was fun um, holding out until holding out till today to to have a look at that picture. I know you said I could have had a look before, but I thought I'll, I'll wait till we actually get to this this segment. So, getting a, a, a live and true 
reaction wouldn't have picked that i could i was sort of as you heard i was sort of thinking that it was possibly some communications thing but uh, that overhead view was very mysterious yeah it does look a bit weird um and actually you can draw uh like like i said sort of like a pentagram through the middle of it which i'm sure gives some people the willies which i think is kind of funny so-